15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's an astronomy podcast heard on multiple podcast platforms globally, uh, which is just outside of Dubbo, uh, where I live in central New South Wales. And my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. Uh, Good day, Andrew. You would drive through globally quite often, I reckon. I do, yeah. In fact, I did last night. I drove through globally. Yes. Yeah, you did a big trek home, didn't you? Uh, I did. Uh, from Coonabarabran to, uh, to Sydney, uh, a very, very well-worn path. It was a nice drive last night, very little traffic, uh, beautiful evening. Oh, and Andrew, I've got to tell you this. The absolute highlight of the trip, I had a passenger with me, my colleague Reg Wilson, who's our lighting consultant uh, for Dark Skies. Uh, we, uh, I said to him, uh, there is the shadow of the Earth rising on the atmosphere. This is this beautiful pink, pinkish glow you can see yes. on the on the on the eastern side when the when the sun is setting. I've taken uh, a couple the, of photos of it recently. It's been so yeah, lovely. It's lovely. That's right. It's called the Belt of Venus. But what I said to Reg was, the moon's going to be rising somewhere in that in a few minutes. Look out for it. And so we were kind of scanning. We're in the hilly area, so there wasn't much to see until we came round a corner. And there it was, mm. uh, the full moon sitting right in what we call the belt of Venus, this beautiful blue to pink to blue again glow that's the shadow of the Earth rising. So that was absolutely stunning uh, and made me glad that I'm an astronomer. <laughs> well, I'm not, but I saw it and I, I was, uh, yeah, it is just a beautiful sight. And where I live, I've got a quite a panoramic view across uh, the eastern yeah. Yeah. Um, Macquarie Valley, which is lovely. Yeah. Very good. Today, Fred, we're going to talk about uh, someone we've we've discussed before on the segment, uh, astronaut Peggy Whitson, and we we talked about her potentially breaking records in terms of space travel. Well, she's done it, and uh, they've referred to her as a space ninja, although she's not wearing black. But anyway, we'll um, talk about her, and I love the names of these things, the supermassive black hole. Uh, which has been found in our in our galaxy, which um, you know means we're all going down the drain, perhaps. And we'll answer a, a question from John. Uh, he's the only John on planet Earth, so you should know who you are. Um, but first, uh, let's talk about Peggy Whitson. This is uh, this is one amazing lady. Absolutely, um, Andrew. Uh, look, this is a story. You said you mentioned records, and she smashed them all. <laughs> she is, she is an astonishing astronaut, a NASA astronaut, just re- recently returned to Earth from a stint on the space station. So, just to to, to summarise what her records are, uh, her uh, recent um, sojourn on the space station gave her 288 days in space, which is quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, and that adds to her previous missions uh, to make a total number of days off the planet of 665. And that is more than any other American. Um, uh, he, well, that, that's uh, almost two years in orbit. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes, indeed it is, altogether. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> two years of her life she spent in orbit. So uh, no other American has exceeded that. Just for the record, uh, it's um, the 
cosmonaut who's had the longest time, 673 days over five missions, in fact, Fyodor Yurkishkin mm. is his name. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but something like that. Yeah, we, we, 673 you know, you know, days. You know, Fred, Peggy was there by choice. Um, poor old Fyodor was stuck up there because something broke and he couldn't get uh, out. Uh, that, I think that's right. Yes, I think you're correct. Yeah, we need to check back that. But no, Peggy, 665 days. No other American has has done that. Uh, and it also exceeds that of any other woman. So including astronauts of every other nation, mm. she's beaten them to it because she's got the longest days. So that's a start. <laughs> um, okay, she is uh, the most experienced female space walker. Uh, which means she has spent more uh, more missions, uh, more um, what we call EVAs, extravehicular activity. You get outside the spacecraft and you wander around. Now, you're wandering around not on any kind of surface because the space station is in orbit. So a spacewalk is a misnomer. It is actually, uh, you, you basically just become an orbiting satellite of the Earth. Um, it must be a, a very, very salutary experience because you're in your spacesuit, the only thing between you and the hostile universe outside is the, the fabric or the fabrics, and they're very complex that make up the material of the spacesuit. Uh, but you are basically an orbiting satellite. Mm. Uh, but so why is she a record breaker? She's done that ten times. Wow. Uh, ten times she's been outside the space station and, and done let, stuff. Let's not understate it. It is dangerous work. It, it is, is. Yeah, that's right. Extremely dangerous out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and especially that's... the part where, look, you're out there in, in this, this void, in this, this vacuum of space in absolute silence, and all you can hear is Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, it's really tragic. <laughs> I'm sure she'd, uh, she'd probably a Simon and Garfunkel fan. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but um, it's, as you said, you highlight the danger. And um, a couple of times recently we've had incidents where um, they, basically there's been water condensing in the helmet of astronauts. Wow. Uh, because something's gone wrong with their, you know, uh, humidity system in the spacecraft. And that is extremely dangerous because the water, of course, doesn't, doesn't pool. It's, you're in, uh, essentially, you're weightless. So what you get is droplets of water floating around inside your helmet. Mm. And you breathe in one of those, and you're in big trouble uh, getting water in your lungs. Uh, so um, that's been highlighted a couple of times uh, over the past probably three or four years that that has occurred. And they've got the astronaut in back inside as quickly as possible because it's a dangerous situation. So you're quite right. It's not it's not a spacewalk. <laughs> Sorry. Cakewalk is, I think, the, uh, the not a uh, word I was looking for. It's it's a dangerous thing. Um, yes. So she's done that 10 times. I'm sure she's enjoyed them most of the time. It goes without a hitch. You know, you wouldn't send astronauts out there if they were at high risk of, of harm. Uh, it's just once in a while you get something going wrong. She, she's done 10. Okay. She has also become, with this particular mission, the first woman to command the space station twice. Wow. Because she was uh, the space station commander since, uh, I think, since November when she, when she went up. So uh, that's, um, you know, another, another record. How many have we got now? About four or five or oh, something? Oh, yeah, she's racking them up. And the, the one that um, I guess is closest to my heart because um, um, I'm no spring chicken, she's the world's oldest space woman. She is, not, she is definitely a spring chicken, is, is uh, Peggy, because she is a, such a wonderful woman, very, very 
you know, lively, full of life, full of enthusiasm for what she does. Uh, absolute icon for, um, you know, pe people of her generation. Uh, fantastic. Oldest space woman, age 57. She turned 57 uh, during her mission. So I take my hat off to Peggy and salute her and wish her well in her future endeavours. She does deserve the title Space Ninja. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Good for her. That's a, that's fantastic, and um, yeah, I think that um, women can hold her up as a as a glowing example of of what women can do. For so long, they were shut out of these things. They were yeah. they were we, seen as inferior and incapable, and it's absolutely wrong. Completely ridiculous, as we all know. But mm. uh, yeah, that's that's great stuff. Very good. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. More to come on uh, Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Right, and now, Fred, we're going to talk about uh, something that's come up in discussions many times, and that is black holes. In fact, we spoke about um, black holes only uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, but this is new. This is news. This has uh, sort of hit the headlines this week. An enormous black hole... Uh, which is also named Andrew's bank account, uh, about 100,000 <laughs> times more massive than the sun has uh, been found lurking in the Milky Way galaxy. This, um, this is a very interesting and somewhat amazing find. Uh, I think lurking is the right word, uh, Andrew, because we haven't known about this black hole till now. Uh, and it, it is an amazing find, um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But let me just explain the circumstances of how this has been discovered and, and put in a bit of background. Uh, first of all, we live in a galaxy. We call it the Milky Way galaxy, this huge swirling disk of stars and gas and dust, uh, something like 100,000 light years in diameter. Um, and, of course, a light year, as everybody knows, is 9.5 trillion kilometres. It's a long way. Mm. So 100,000 of them is even further. It beats the global uh, world outside Dubbo into fits, I can tell you. So we are about halfway between the centre and the edge. And when we look in towards the centre of our galaxy, about 25,000 light years away, um, actually we're looking towards the constellation Sagittarius. That's uh, the direction in which our uh, the centre of the galaxy is. It's... Um, actually where the Milky Way is at its brightest and thickest, and that's because there is this huge aggregation of stars near the centre of the galaxy. Okay, so we've known uh, for about the last maybe 20 years with increasing certainty that at the very centre of our galaxy there is a black hole, and this one is indeed a supermassive black hole. Uh, its mass has been measured by the motion of stars that are orbiting around it, uh, to be about 3.6 million times the mass of the sun. So it, we're measuring it in millions of solar masses. That's uh, the, the sort of standard yardstick for these supermassive black holes. Now, we think pretty well all galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their center. And one of the great hot topics in uh, uh, astrophysics and cosmology these days is which came first, the black hole or the galaxy. Ah. Uh, and it, it probably, it, it's probably the case that they evolved together. But uh, galaxies seem commonly to have a supermassive black hole, sometimes far more massive than the one at the centre of ours. We know of, of uh, black holes, supermassive black holes, more than a million times, sorry, more than a billion times oh. the mass of the sun. Uh, in the centres of galaxies. So these things we lump together, as you've probably gathered by now, under the heading of a supermassive black hole. Um, now, on the other side of the coin, we see black holes uh, in galaxies 
which are not much more massive than the sun, maybe 20, 10, 20, 50 times more massive than the sun, 100 times more massive than the sun. And we call those stellar mass black holes because they've got the mass of, of a massive star, roughly the mass of a star. And they probably have uh, originated from stars that have exploded at the end of their lives, stars much more massive than the sun, explode at the end of their lives, create a black hole, and you get something that might, might be wet, maybe weighs 20 times the mass of the sun. But here's the, here's the puzzle, Andrew. Mm. There's nothing in between them. Yes. Uh, you've got these things that are, you know, the mass of a star, things that are the, nearly the mass of a galaxy, and nothing in between. Yes, and that we, we've, had, we've had a chat about that before. There's no medium-sized black holes in, yeah, we've in got basic a, terms. That's right. We've got a fancy name for them. We call them intermediate mass black holes oh, because they are intermediate between the big ones and the small ones. Look, there's no... Oh, gosh, there's no uh, no holding our we astronomers when it comes to fancy names for things. Intermediate black mass black holes. So what's the uh, what's the great outcome of this story? Well, we found one. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, why it's exciting. So what's happened is a group of scientists, uh, actually Japanese scientists, although they've been using a European telescope, uh, which we've talked about a number of times recently. It's a radio telescope called ALMA. Uh, ALMA, of course, is an acronym for the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. Uh, it's operated by the European Southern Observatory and, and a few other institutions as well. Uh, in northern Chile, it's in, actually in the northern Atacama Desert. I've been there. The telescope's at a height of about five kilometers, so you can hardly breathe yeah. when you're when Sounds near it. amazing. It is pretty amazing. So it's an array of telescopes, radio telescopes, that look in what we call the millimeter, millimeter region of the spectrum. And that's a great way of probing gas clouds in space. So what the uh, Japanese astronomers have done, led by an astronomer at the uh, Keio University in Tokyo, uh, they've been probing gas clouds not too far from the galactic center, maybe 200 light years from this supermassive black hole uh, at the middle of our galaxy. And they've found this cloud of gas, and it's uh, Gases that uh, to us are completely toxic, there's sort of hydrogen, cyanide, and all kinds of uh, stuff in there. There's quite a, an agenda, carbon monoxide, no, many, you're talking many about of my these. my wife's cooking now, aren't you? Carry on. <laughs> I'm not going there, Andrew. I'm <laughs> definitely not going there. Uh, <laughs> but um, so this cloud of gas, and, and what they've found is that there are sort of churning motions in these gases that can only be caused by something very, very compact and very, very massive at the center of the gas cloud. What is it? Well, it's so compact and so massive that it can only be a black hole. Um, and the key thing is that it's about 100,000 times more massive than the sun. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it's much less than a supermassive black hole. And that qualifies it as one of these elusive intermediate mass black holes. So this, uh, this is an indirect observation. Black holes, you always observe them indirectly. Principally, you observe them by looking at the motions of things around them. And in this case, you're looking at the motion of gas around, around the black hole. Uh, so they've published a paper in uh, Nature Astronomy, the, the prestigious, probably one of the most prestigious journals in the world. Uh, they speculate that this newly found black hole could actually be the, the black hole that used to be at the center of a dwarf galaxy that was basically uh, subsumed into our own galaxy because that's what big galaxies do. They gobble up smaller ones. Yeah. And actually, we think that's how 
black holes become supermassive because they gobble up smaller galaxies with their own black holes, and that adds to the to the black hole at the center of the galaxy. So this looks like a very, very nice piece of work that, um, as I said, um, probably answers one of the big questions that astronomers have been asking for many years. Uh, where are the intermediate mass black holes? Ah. Here's, here's one that we found. But does it, Fred? Because in all the years that you and I have spoken, I, there's one thing that sticks in my mind. We have found one. And that doesn't prove that there are others but if we find another, then yeah. the dominoes start to tumble. It's the same as the life in the universe question. We only exactly. know of one planet with life. Exactly. So you, you're right. That's right. It's a, it's a unique, a single example. But you can bet your life there'll be more turning up uh, in due course. As, as astronomy technology improves and we find you know, more interesting bits of the universe to look at. So a great story. And I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm very, um, I'm very encouraged by this. Mm. Uh, I think it's, um, it's something... And it's not often that you and I talk about something that uh, is missing in the universe and then a few weeks later it's found. I mean, that's, that's, that's right. pretty rare too. It could be a real turning point. Of could course, be. it's probably, probably, maybe these astronomers listen to our podcast. That maybe. Could be what it is. Next ah, week, yes. life on Europa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Uh, but, yeah, that's interesting. So there'll be uh, probably more to come on that and uh, they'll, they'll certainly, now that they know how, they'll probably be able to find a few more. Uh, Fred, so. Fred Watson is astronomer from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, the expert on this podcast. I'm Andrew Dunkley, your host, and you're listening to Space Nuts. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, a, a listener question, and we love listener questions, and you can certainly send them to us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we uh, welcome them all, and we answer none. If we can help it. But we're going to answer this one from John Milton in Sydney. Uh, uh, John has said, loved your article on Titan. Uh, when the sun becomes a red giant, will Titan be the new habitable zone? Uh, I guess we won't be around, but uh, might the solar system get a second chance at life, a.k.a. Earth's early evolution? Interesting question, John. Very interesting. So where will the Goldilocks zone be when the sun turns into a red giant, Fred? Um, Andrew, John's right on the money. What's going to happen uh, as the sun evolves into the later phases of its life? And we're now talking about maybe three and a half, four billion years down the track, not well, put it in your diary if you want, but you might have a long wait. Uh, the sun, the sun uh, it, it, what will happen is its, its atmosphere basically starts puffing away from, from the nucleus of the sun. And uh, that raises the temperature. The sun's habitable zone will begin to move out. We sometimes call it the Goldilocks zone because mm. it's that region of space where it's not too hot and it's not too cold, but it's just right for liquid water to exist. So it's all about the possibility of liquid water. And of course, at the moment, the sun, the Earth sits firmly in the sun's Goldilocks zone. So the sun evolves into a, a different kind of star. The Goldilocks zone indeed moves outwards. So it will move past the orbit of Mars. Mars's copious quantities of water will thaw out and it will, might even become a water world. It might even be covered with water because there's so much ice there uh, on, on Mars. Uh, the moons of Jupiter, the ice moons of Jupiter, likewise will become water moons. And eventually, uh, Titan itself will be in the habitable zone. Now, Titan is, uh, is often held up as a model for what the early Earth was like, with uh, kind of primitive weather systems and 
uh, a whole meteorology, uh, which on Titan now is, uh, it exists, but it's different from the Earth, because on the Earth, our meteorology is all driven by water vapor because of the place where we are in the solar system. Yeah. Um, Titan, though, its, uh, its weather is driven by, as you know, we've discussed it many times before, uh, liquid natural gas. It's hydrocarbons. It's actually methane and ethane, of which there is enough in the atmosphere that occasionally you get rain uh, and it forms rivers. And we know that there are what seem to be fairly permanent lakes and seas on Titan, but they're liquid hydrocarbon rather than water. Mm. So that, um, of course, uh, as the what we might call the conventional habitable zone, uh, where you're looking at liquid water, as that uh, reaches Titan, all those things are going to disappear, they'll evaporate, they'll turn into gas. Uh, and of course, the surface of Titan, which is made of solid ice, that will turn into water as well. So it will become a very different world. It will actually be covered in, in liquid water. Maybe life could evolve there. Um, John's uh, suggestion that maybe the solar system might get a second chance at, at life, uh, that is a very good one. And indeed, it might have already happened by then because the same kind of thing could have happened on Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, the moons of Jupiter, which we know are pretty icy, solid ice. Uh, but um, I think there's a different way of looking at this because, in, you know, if you imagine uh, microbes, and certainly life scientists have postulated this, which can exist at minus 180 degrees Celsius, uh, which is the average temperature on Titan, and can uh, thrive on methane and ethane. They breathe hydrogen. They eat acetylene. Mm. Uh, they, they, they don't exist, but they've been postulated. Or they might, might not exist. They may actually exist. If they do exist, then Titan is already in the sun's habitable zone for um, hydrocarbon-based life. And that is the exciting thing about this, because... Uh, you know, Cassini has uncovered so much detail on Titan. We're sort of mourning Cassini at the moment because it's on its last legs. It's yeah. uh, within a few days of the time we're speaking. It will plunge into Saturn's atmosphere, and that will be the end of the project. But um, it may have already uncovered an area where you could have a habitable zone based on methane and ethane. And surely there will be missions going back to have a look and see what's there. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, John's question and your answer has prompted another question in my mind. Right. Um, that's the journalist in me. Um, what would uh, a red giant's effect be on other outer planets? If, it, if it's going to turn Titan into a liquid planet and yes. off the gases and things like yep. that, what effect is it going to have on the, uh, on the gas giants, on the gas giants and, and, the outer, and the outer satellites? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the gas giants, um, you know, will be, they'll be heated up. They'll probably become very, very puffy. Uh, we, we see puffy gas giants when we look at exoplanets. We know that there are some that have got really quite loose atmospheres, and that will probably happen to Saturn, uh, Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune. And uh, their moons will, of course, thaw out. Uh, the same will happen with all these um, dwarf planets and Kuiper Belt objects way out beyond the orbit of Neptune. There's a place called Pluto, mm. which you may have heard of, which will also melt eventually because Pluto is largely made of ice too. Uh, may even have a, an ocean underneath, even at the minus 228 or whatever it is degrees Celsius that Pluto's surface is at. Remarkable stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting to, to, to think about what will happen to our solar system. And it tells you, 
that really when you look out into space at other solar systems, you, you should expect to find anything because you're looking at stars which are in different uh, phases of their evolution. And indeed, that's exactly what we do find. Oh, you know, a whole plethora of different kinds of solar systems. That's why it's so, so exciting. And just very quickly, another question. Uh, would a puffy gas giant have a, uh, a negative effect on a, on a moon like Titan? Yes, probably. <laughs> so they may not be able to... No, I mean, look, Titan's going to be... If, if, if Titan is very wet and your planet is puffy, who knows what might happen? Yeah. You could have all kinds of uh, different kinds of life forms evolving. And, of course, we are talking about very long timescales here. You know, the, these processes... So there there might slow. be a window in between the effects. Yes, mm. yes, that's right. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. Thank you for your question, John, and keep them coming. As I said, you can send us your questions uh, through our Facebook <laughs> and Twitter accounts. Just uh, do a search for Space Nuts and look for Fred's face. Uh, Fred, thank you as always. Uh, it's a great pleasure, Andrew. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I, I do send in your questions. It's great to be able to answer them and uh, the ones that we can anyway. Yeah, so, we've, uh, we've got so a we... really good one, but we've got to do a lot of homework on it about yes, um, uh, right. being pregnant and giving birth in, in space exactly. and what the effect on the baby would be. We, we love the question. We just don't know the answer yet. Not <laughs> yet. We're going to figure it out. We'll we're going to figure it out. it out. Fred, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Sounds great, Andrew. Good luck with uh, the uh, wider universe there out in Dubbo. Yes, uh, the, the, um, yeah, the galaxy outside of our town. Uh, we actually do have that. I forgot, uh, I should mention that because uh, of our proximity to your um, uh, telescope, uh, all the towns leading up to um, the Siding Spring Observatory have planets in them that are measured to be um, you know, on, a, on a scale equal to the, the solar system. So um, we, Dubbo is Pluto, where I am. And <laughs> as you get right. closer to Siding Spring, the planets are, are popping up on the highway. It's very clever. I love it. I love it. Should have mentioned that. Yeah, we might talk about that sometimes because sometime, I had a lot to do with that. Yes, you still, did. I remember doing the interview when it first came up. Yeah. All right, see you, Fred. We'll catch you next time. That's Fred Sam. Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley. Thanks for listening. We love uh, hearing back from you, as I said. And if you want to tell your friends about us, we love that too. Uh, you can pick us up on Audio Boom, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, etc. I think that's a podcast platform too. Uh, look, um, and, and uh, uh, keep um, following us on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else. And we'll catch you next time. On Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.